Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Redeeming Life Fellowship live stream. Uh, so thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Uh, today, uh, we're going to be focusing on a new book. Uh, so we're going to offer an introduction to James. Uh, tonight, we're hopefully going to be taking about just a half an hour to give you a little bit of a snapshot picture of what a book like James is like. And then also walking through the first chapter and trying to piece together, follow his train of thought, and really learn how to hear the Word of God through the book of James very well. So, but yes, James. James is a, is a rather unique epistle for uh, a few reasons. One of them being epistle, that means what we're reading here is a letter. He's sitting down to write a letter to Christians. But this type of epistle is very similar to that of 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st and 2nd 3rd John, and Jude, in what's regarded as a Catholic epistle. That's not Catholic, capital C, like Roman Catholics, where James is, you know, dressed, you know, like a pope or a bishop with a funny hat. He's not a Catholic epistle in that sense, but rather Catholic lowercase c. In other words, this is a message that's aimed or regarded for the church as a whole. So we're talking about uh, Christians as he's described, or as it's described in uh, verse 1, to is the 12 tribes among the nations, the diaspora as it's sometimes called. So we're talking about the church as it's spread out, the chosen people of God, wherever they may be found among the nations who are trying to live as the people of God in a world that's not their own. So, whether you take that the description in verse 1 uh, literally, which you can, or metaphorically, it still works the same way. So, but yeah, the, James is a Catholic epistle, and James, I, I really actually feel out of my element trying to describe the book of like, James, because James is, of all the epistles, Probably the one when I think of is the most like Pastor Jesse. If you know Pastor Jesse very well, he is a man about action. He wants to see not just that you know the word, but that you do the word. He is a man who will never get away from the text without, without him emphasizing or showing and pushing all of us as the people of God to action, to go do something about what we're doing. And James is like that, where the imperative verbs that he uses, they occur with more frequency than any other epistle, even indeed any other book of the New Testament, where it's like at every turn, he's always pushing us to do that sort of thing. He's almost, maybe if you like the term or the comparison, uh, like uh, Rocky in the Ring and... Uh, why can't I think of his name? Oh, it's just, this is killing me. Uh, the, um, you know, the, the trainer who's in the corner, who's trying to push him, you know, to, to the edge. Uh, maybe Julie will figure that out. I feel like such a, so ashamed I brought up a movie reference that I don't know the, 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 the person's, the, 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 the reference to. But anyway, the, the person who's in the corner, who's, who's really pushing us to the right action. Uh, but anyway, so... James is like that, but what, what that also means is that James uh, of, of any of the... the uh, Mickey? Mickey, that's right, thank you. Mick or Mickey, yes. 
Uh, so, <laughs> if you want to go watch uh, Rocky after this sermon, then uh, it'll all make sense then. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> we're like Rocky and James is like Mickey in the corner. You know, coaching us along, giving us all the instructions and things that we need to do. James is, of all the, 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 the epistles, is among the most practical. It's giving us things to do. It's addressing uh, not just simply Christian beliefs. Actually, uh, he doesn't really dive into any detail about orthodoxy very much. But rather, he is exhorting us, pushing us towards right action. That's a book like James. So if you're going to read through James, you're going to be prepared to go and have something you can take and put into action. And so that's one thing. The other thing about James, because remember, we're wanting just an overview about what a book like James is like. One of the things that I've certainly found with difficulty is that it's sometimes uh, hard for us to grasp James's train of thought, or maybe to mistakenly think that his train of thought is a runaway, that it's just going off in all different directions, or maybe where, where, where as you're reading, it seems like he's, he's constantly shifting the, the, uh, the subject. It's sort of like the person, maybe if you've tried to have a conversation with them in a matter of five minutes, they'll move the topic, shift the topic from politics to presidents to pesticides to petri dishes to popcorn. You're like, where is it that you're, that you're taking this, this conversation? I don't know what's going on. And even Martin Luther, one of the fathers of the Reformation, uh, a very harsh critic of the book of James, in my opinion, uh, he, he looked at James and looked as though that he took all this message and somehow chaotically threw them together. So, there's been, historically, some difficulty in saying, James, I, I'm trying to follow you where it is that you're taking us. And one of the things that I want us to do tonight is to give you at least something to hold on to that can help us make sense of how it is that James is putting, putting his work together. And I want to do so not just simply to, for us to wrap our minds around uh, how it is that he's putting it together, but because I think this frame of reference is, is actually important for us to be able to get at the heart of what James is saying. Are you with me? I hope you are. One of the things, one of the things I want to offer to you, and granted, this is just something that I want to offer to you as means of a help. If it helps, great. If not, you can drop it. But, so here's where I want to go next. Uh, you're probably wondering why it is that we have this uh, dynamite, this um, TNT that's at the top uh, right next to James, which, do any of you know what does TNT actually stand for? Any, any guesses? Uh, don't use Google yet. Uh, it actually stands for a chemical compound called trinitrotolerine. So if nothing else, you now have a word that finally rhymes with Halloween, trinitrotolerine. But I'm not talking about trinitrotolerine here. I'm not talking about the explosive TNT. 
What I want to talk about with TNT is this. Trials and temptations. You can say that with me. Trials and temptations. And there's a reason why I bring this up. For one, the, the relationship between Christian life and trials and temptations is one of the most prominent features, one of the most prominent subjects that James deals with. And he doesn't only deal with it the most, but he also, in a rough and ready fashion, begins his epistle with trials and temptations, and then ends very nearly in chapter 5 the issue of trials and temptations. So if you like, you can think of how it's like the bread to a sandwich, where the sandwich, there's lots of things in the middle, but if it's beginning with trials and temptations and ending with the subject of trials and temptations, it's the way in which that the Christian deals with or approaches with the trials and temptations that gives coherence and substance uh, to how it is that we should understand everything that's in the middle. So when James talks about uh, taming the tongue, when he talks about warnings against the rich, when he talks about warnings against favoritism, when he's talking about faith and deeds, where at some point these things are either related or that they're held together by the way in which that we understand trials and temptations. And I'm going to try and explain why this way. I want to sh share with you and help getting us thinking in this same direction is that uh, is a reflection of my own that I've, I've pondered over again and again and again for a long time. Uh, throughout the, the course of my life, I've just turned 35 years old. I'm getting gray hairs and I love it. Uh, the, the, I've been, been raised in church and for most of my life, I have served under or beside uh, working with maybe 20 or so pastors in my entire life. And some are better, some are for the worse, some are more influential than others, but that's at least not the point. Of, of that approximate 20, I can think of at least five five different pastors who had to leave ministry or perhaps even uh, the Christian faith altogether on account of a moral lapse or a moral failure. And that's always a shaky business because when, I'm, when you're learning at the feet of somebody who in the end had failed because of moral compromise. You feel like your life is shaken because you watched them fall in that way. And, and it forces the question back on me, what in the world went wrong? And this is no time to be able to, to, um, to unpack in, a, in detail what the problems were, what led to their failures, is that in virtually every instance, the crisis, to my understanding, was never one of faith. It's not as though that 
they were wrestling with deep-seated doubts that they never came to terms with or, or handled well. It was never the issue with orthodoxy, but at some point or another led to orthopraxy. The problem that led to their downfall was not their faith, faith but their deeds. Where at some point they had their faith, but their deeds started moving out of step with their faith to the point that their faith ended up destroying their deeds. And one of the issues where that they, that they had faced was that the, the, the misdeeds, the misconducts, the sin that entangled them was within the context of trials and temptations. So in other words, the trials and temptations came and their deeds led to their downfall. And the point I want us to get at, here and now, and to bear in mind throughout the book of James, is that, well, one, everybody is going to face trials and temptations. Even more so are we going to experience trials and temptations in the Christian life. Let me reassure you, if you're looking to the Christian life for something that is easy, something that makes you comfortable, something that serves to fulfill all of your wishes, to, uh, then you're going to be very disappointed. That's not the Christian life. That there are trials and temptations that are, in fact, I would say unique to the way in which people, the way in which uh, folks, uh, where, where, where we take the discipline of following Jesus Christ as his disciples seriously. Trials and temptations are going to come. However, whether or not those trials and temptations are going to bring about any kind of fruit in your life depends on how you respond to them. So that your deeds are, are such that they respond to the trials and temptations in our life that bring about the godly life, the fruitful life that, that, that God desires for us. In other words, trials and temptations will come, and they're instrumental in the hands of God to shape us and mold us into the people he's called us to be, to make us holy, to make us pure, to make us righteous, to make us whole again. In other words, to sanctify us. Trials and temptations are instrumental in the hands of God to bring about our holiness, to bring about our good. And how we respond to them is going to make the difference in whether or not that is going to bring about our holiness or if it's going to bring about our destruction. So, what I, what I want us to do in this case is to... Oh, and I want you to go about this exercise with a grain of salt and with a little bit of caution. That as you're reading through James, and you're jumping from, from, from point to point to point to point, he's bouncing all over the place, ask yourself, is there a trial or a temptation that's behind what James is talking about? And, and the problem that James is referring to. Because, let's face it, it, of, 
of all temptations that are the most dangerous, the ones that are the most dangerous are the ones that are the most subtle. And James is uncovering the subtle temptations as, long as, as well as the blatant ones. And so I want us to be able to, to recognize with James the trials and temptations that, that we as Christians face and think about the actions that he's calling us to that are going to bring about God's purposes in the TNT. Are you with me? Does this make sense? Are we all on the same page? Okay, let's go. I'm assuming this. Anyway, so let's look at this. Uh, let's read through James chapter 1. And it says this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. So let's first read through uh, verses 2 through 7. And we're going to point out some TNT on this side. This is the do-it side. Okay, there it goes. So, here we go. Alright, let's read together. James chapter 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing, or not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. And, but when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. Uh, which I realize now that this is supposed to be 2 through 7, excuse me. That's 2 through 7. I'm going to fix that quickly. Uh, la, 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 la. There it is. I mean, 2 through 8. Goodness. I am such a hot mess. All right. So, here we go. Uh, let's see here. Yes. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. So, part of the problem here is one that is a lack of wisdom and doubt. And in response is to ask and trust. To put this short and sweet, a lack of wisdom and doubt, they're marks of biblical foolishness. And one of the things, the, the key characteristics of a person who is foolish is their inability to be able to recognize their own foolishness. One of the things that you'll that, that you'll never hear from the fool say. They'll never say, I don't know. They'll never admit how much it is that they don't know. That uh, the, the, the mark of a fool is a person who, who can never bring themselves to the point to admit the mistakes that they've made. Uh, God doesn't want that. Uh, but what he does want 
is the humility to be able to ask for wisdom that we recognize that we don't have. If I, at, sitting at the, 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 the table and having supper with Julie, and I ask, please pass the salt, I'm recognizing I don't have what I need, but she does, so I'm going to ask her. So, it's in the midst of a trial and temptation, it's perfectly understandable to recognize that, that um, you don't know what to do. It's not a bad position to be in a place where you don't know what to do. But in that circumstance, ask God for wisdom, and, he'll, he, and he gives. God is a giver of wisdom. And sometimes we receive God's wisdom and we make a poor use of it, and then we have to learn again and again. Uh, God, continue to show us wisdom, because at the very least, when you ask God for wisdom, you're putting your place in a, putting yourself in a place of humility before God. If you're walking in a place of humility before God, you are on the right path. That is a good place to be in the midst of trials and temptations. So, let's continue. Uh, okay, verses 9 through 11. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position. This is an example of biblical irony. I wish I had more time to unpack, but I do not. Um, because he will pass away like a wild flower, for the sun rises with scorching heat the, and withers. The plant, its blossoms fail, and its beauty destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. So there is a temptation towards wealth and the status that comes with it. Because with status comes power, and power comes security. But what do we have here instead? We have humility and contentment. Those are good places to be in the midst of trials and temptations. Let's continue. Verses 12 through 15. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to to death. One of the things that we're in the midst of trials and temptations, we will be tempted to accuse God and to make him the person responsible for this. Uh, that we'll be tempted to say that God is testing us. But the problem when it comes to the way in which trial turns into temptation, which is the same, they share the same Greek root, but I digress, is, um, is the way in which our sinful hearts are drawn to the things that, that lead to death in the midst of our trials. And one of the things that's important about there, it's not explicit in the text, but it's confession. Because sin, when you're talking about when it's full grown, gives birth to death, one of the ways to deal with our sin 
is to confess it because whatever you don't confess has power over you. And when sin has power over your life, and when it's full grown, it will lead to death. It will lead to separation from God. Uh, so I encourage you, uh, when you're in the midst of your trials and temptations, go ahead and confess. Are we still rolling? Okay, good. So, verses 16 through 18. Do not be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. And here, what I want you to notice that there is implicit a temptation towards pride of accomplishment. And the inverse is to recognize God's grace and to respond with gratitude. Pride of accomplishment and grace and gratitude. Because what does he say? Do, don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above. It is always a temptation that we take the gifts of God and regard them as, their, as our own. And that once we regard God's gifts of grace as our own, we feel as though that we're entitled to them. And whatever we feel like we're entitled to, we are going to abuse. Uh, it fortunately reminds me of the way in which, perhaps you know, or when the investigation came out under Dr. Ravi Zacharias and his, uh, his the, the reports of sexual abuse, that even at that stage of his life, he succumbed to the trial of rationalizing his sin by thinking that, that, that the world owed him something. Uh, and that led him to succumb to the temptations that, um, that, were, that are in there. But to respond, uh, we don't take pride in our own accomplishments, but we recognize, we turn our eyes towards God and recognize his grace and respond with gratitude. So let's continue. Verses 19 through 20. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everybody should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Did you know that there's a, a righteous life that God desires for you? Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word that is planted in you. So... If I could try and sum up the temptation that's in view here, you could summarize it in this lovely word, hubris, an over-exaggerated pride and self-confidence. Because nobody will be, uh, when you have hubris, you're always going to get angry when other people affront you. You're going to be uh, quick to speak and you're going to be slow to listen. When this is the dominating feature in your life. And God doesn't want that, but rather what he wants for us is humility, and he wants us to be rid of moral filth. He wants us to be teachable, that uh, to put away our hubris and to humble ourselves before God. That's at least one way to be able to continue or to respond in uh, trials and, uh, and tribulations. 
Now, here's a here's a a, a big one where uh, we're we're all guilty of, and it says this: Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do it, do what it says, is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom, that's the gospel he's talking about, and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, will be blessed in what he does. So in other words, the temptation that's being for all of us is to merely listen. Because we think that by merely listening, that that's the thing that, that, that puts us in right standing before God. On the contrary, we have to do it. Doing what it says. And... This is one of the best ways I think I can try and summarize this as a trial or a temptation. In our Christian life, the more often, try and pay attention to this, the more often we listen without acting, the less it will be possible for us to ever act. And in the long run, the less it will be possible for us to ever listen. The more often you listen without acting, the, the less we will ever be able to act. And in the long run, the less we will ever be able to listen. So when you listen, reinforce it with action. Don't merely listen to the word of God, but do what it says. And lastly, Verses 26 through 27. Verse, yes. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. In other words, religion as a shorthand way of talking about all the things that we're doing and putting into practice that are acceptable in the sight of God. That's what he's referring to about religion. And it says, if anyone considers himself religious but can't keep a tight right under his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worth, worthless. Religion that our God and Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Those are the vulnerable he's talking about. And to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. The problem here, loose lips, but how should we respond? We need to walk in compassion and purity. Compassion and purity. So it was once said at during the uh, World War II that cheap talk costs lives. Uh, that if you're not careful with what you say, uh, in the long run, um, your, your actions are going to falter. And it's so easy for all of us to think that if we talk enough about the right things, that those are the sorts of things that because God hears them, 
that those are the things that make us acceptable to God. That's not the religion that God is looking for. But rather, the religion that God accepts as pure and faultless is when our hearts are moved by compassion because of what we've seen in the light of the gospel and what God has done. That we become people who live the love that's reflected in the love that God shows towards us. That's real religion. And that purity, meaning that the world corrupted by sin and that is in active defiant rebellion against him, that even as we live in the world, we're not to be corrupted by the world. We're not to simply look at every single shifting uh, cultural standard and say, I'm just going to abide with it because this is the thing that makes me safe. This is the way that I uh, acclimate to my surroundings. This is the way that I blend in for my own safety and enjoyment and security. Uh, that's not what God calls us to. God calls you and I to indeed a holy life that is a life that of, of a people whose deeds are characteristic of the life and the love and the holiness of God. So I encourage you, as you're reading through James and we're meditating on what it is that he has to say, uh, think about the TNT. Think about the trials and the temptations. And, and see in what ways James calls us to respond, to, to put to action the message of God's word so that we can not be blown up by the TNT, but rather uh, we're... we're <laughs> What's, I don't know if there's a positive way to, 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 to put the TNT. Diffuse it. Diffuse it. Or rather, uh, let TNT blow up the stuff that it's not going to matter so that um, we'll hold fast to Christ, the, the cornerstone, uh, the rock of ages. So that's the way I'm going with it. So thank you so much for your time. I'm so sorry I went a little bit over. But uh, God bless you and keep you. And I hope I get to see you all here. Uh, in person on Sunday. So God bless you. Take care and I'll see you next time.